Hello and welcome to the March Network podcast, Mental Health and Communities. The March Network is a network of researchers, policymakers and community organisations that focus on social, cultural and community assets and how these assets can be harnessed to support our mental health. We will be recording regular episodes with some of the top researchers and practitioners in the country around these areas and hope to inspire you to become more engaged in this ever-growing field. Whether you be a researcher yourself, a GP, a worker in the community sector, or just an interested citizen. I'm your host, Henry Alderson, previously studying medicine and, and now doing a PhD around social prescribing and models of general practice at UCL Institute of Epidemiology. Our first guest is Dr. Daisy Fancourt, who is Principal Investigator and Founder of the March Network. Daisy is a psychoneuroimmunologist. Don't worry, we cover what that is during the episode. And today we talk about the March Network, singing and postnatal depression, arts and cultural engagement as protective factors against mental illness, and the importance of cross-disciplinary work. I hope you enjoy. Hi Daisy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Henry. So to start off, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Of course. So I'm an Associate Professor of Psychobiology and Epidemiology at UCL, and my research focuses on different types of social, cultural and community engagement and how they affect our health. So I run a team where we're looking at what types of engagement are linked in with which health outcomes, what the mechanisms underlying this are, who seems to benefit most, and how we can therefore use that information to encourage greater engagement with these activities. So we run laboratory studies looking at biological mechanisms, we run behavioural science studies, uh, we run clinical trials and implementation studies, and we also do epidemiology work looking at public health. Fantastic, so a, a lot of different fields combined. Exactly, very okay. disciplinary. And I think we'll, we'll come on to that interdisciplinary way of working in a little bit. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what the March Network is? So the March Network uh, was formed uh, in 2018, and the aim of it is to try and transform our understanding about how and why social, cultural and community activities, including the arts, heritage, libraries, green spaces, volunteering, social groups, how these things help to enhance mental health and well-being, help to prevent mental illness developing, and also help people with mental illness in their management and recovery. Sure, and assets is within the the acronym of MART, so could you describe a little bit about what that means? Yes, we're particularly focused here on what we call community assets, so tangible things in the community that people can get involved in, like their parks, like their museums. And so what we're focusing on with the network is how we can try and develop new cross-disciplinary research on this topic, uh, how we can try and look at methodologies and how we can capture the impact of these activities in better detail and depth, how we can particularly identify the barriers to engaging amongst people with mental illness, because we know that people with mental illness engage much less in their communities. Um, and we also want to work on early career development, working with policymakers to try and support these activities to make sure they've got the funding and support they need to run, uh, and also enhancing awareness amongst the general public about the health benefits of engaging in their communities. Fantastic. And so what made you realise that the March Network would be an important thing to develop? So UKRI put out a call for mental health networks and as soon as I saw this I thought it was vital that we had something around the social side here because mental health isn't just about a medical model and approach but it's also very much about the environments people live in and these alternative approaches they can have to manage their own mental health outside from a very strained healthcare system. So I spoke with a lot of partners I was already collaborating with and of course everyone you speak to has got more people that they suggest you speak to and we suddenly built this huge momentum during the application phase and what was great is there was a real um, agreement amongst everybody about what our priorities needed to be so it was a very organic process of developing it. Fantastic and, and, and what led you to 
personally being so passionate about the role of, of arts and, and perhaps culture and health? Well, when I was uh, earlier in my career, I worked in the NHS and one of the jobs I had was managing clinical innovations programmes, including arts programmes and health. And seeing the impact of arts activities within hospitals, it's incredibly evident, very tangible, both in, in helping patient experience and clinical outcomes. Uh, so I became really passionate about how we could actually develop more of these programmes that would capture people's imagination, but also lead to very tangible health benefits. Brilliant. And, and March is, is very much an interdisciplinary network. Um, yes. Would you be able to describe a little bit about sort of what that means and maybe some of the benefits of interdisciplinary work? Well, I think when you're dealing with something as complex as different social or community engagement, for example, someone being in a community choir, trying to understand how this is affecting our mental health and what the mechanisms are, this is such a complex intervention and then a complex set of pathways linking it to mental health. No one discipline is going to be able to provide an answer on this. So you need to have essentially multiple lenses from different disciplines, all bringing different theories, different research evidence, and then what you really need to be able to do is bring this together in a kind of cohesive framework. And I think a challenge in the past has been that people in different disciplines often speak different languages, they use different words for very similar mm -hmm. things. They've got very different methodological approaches that mean they, they prioritise certain types of studies more than others. So what we wanted to do with March was to bring these people together for very productive discussions and therefore try and advance the rigour of the research that was being done in the space. Absolutely, which sounds like, as you say, quite a challenging thing to do, um, especially with different disciplines speaking slightly different languages. Can you think of any examples in your own career or, or the broader field of research where interdisciplinary work has been particularly effective? Well, when I did my PhD uh, in psychoneuroimmunology, I was looking at the exposures of activities like making music. And there hadn't been very many biological studies at all on music before. Um, and so we were, I was able to draw on lots of existing biological theories linking mental health with mm. biological markers. And I was also able to draw separately on theories that had been carried out, particularly within psychology, looking at how music affected the brain. But there was this sort of gap between linking up those two different areas. So for my PhD, I had the utter joy of trying to bring these two things together and trying to de develop and run studies that were using the methods and approaches and theories from both of these different areas. Fantastic. So psychoneuroimmunology, for those that don't know, would be psychology, neurology and Neuros immunology? Neuroscience, neuroscience and immunology, okay. yes. So what you're trying to do is look at how psychological processes and thoughts affect biological mechanisms. Fantastic, okay. So could you take us through some of the work that the March Network has been doing so far and maybe any sort of exciting upcoming plans for the network? So the first thing the March Network had to do was to identify the people who are working in this space who want to be collaborating and breaking down the silos that they're currently in. So we've actually had over a thousand people join the network in the first year, which has far exceeded our expectations. And this has been a combination of researchers from lots of different disciplinary backgrounds, community organisations who want to collaborate more with researchers, um, policy makers who are really keen to understand the evidence base in, this, the evidence base in more detail, and, and also mental health charities who are already some of them doing work in this field but really want to be much more linked up. And then we've been starting a series of targeted activities. This has included events and newsletters and websites that will bring people together and give that sense of community. We've got a base, base camp online discussion forum for people to start meeting each other with special interest groups forming. We've also been doing some of our own research, including systematic reviews, key analyses of data sets to give us some of the vital data that we're missing, and also lots of work with policymakers trying to really increase the visibility of this field. And could you give us a few examples of those special interest groups that have arisen? We've got seven or eight special interest groups now. We've got one, for example, on arts, crafts and mental health. 
one on singing and mental health, one on digital community assets and mental health, one on nature and outdoors, one on reading, uh, one on theatre. We've got new ones forming every few weeks at the moment and they're free to join and they've been running different events or online discussions or Twitter chats to try and collaborate more between the members. Fantastic. So these are researchers from across the UK who otherwise would have not have this level of collaboration with each other, I guess. Correct. It can be a real challenge to know, even within your own university, who's working on a similar topic, let alone when you're trying to look across the whole of the UK. Fantastic. And any exciting plans upcoming for the network? So a huge development at the moment is we've launched our first PLUS funding round. So we're giving away money for people to to help them to develop new research projects. And the first round has been sandpit events, so people could apply for money to run an interactive day where they'd bring different people together and develop new research proposals. And we've just closed this yesterday, so we're going to be uh, assessing these applications and then we should have a whole series of events running over the next few months and hopefully lots of new research projects being developed. Exciting, so stay tuned. Um, Okay, let's get on to some of your own research. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about one of your recent studies on singing and postnatal depression in mothers. Yes, this was one of the studies I've done looking at uh, management and treatment of different mental illnesses. And a few years ago I started collaborating um, both with colleagues from the NHS and other researchers looking at the very challenging problem of postnatal depression. And this is challenging because many mothers don't realise they have it. For example, they can't differentiate it from being already tired and run down from becoming a new mother. It's also very difficult to treat because many mothers don't want to take medication when they're breastfeeding and they don't have the time to go to therapy or they're worried about the stigma of it. But there's a lot of theoretical research suggesting that singing could actually help um, mothers either bonding with their babies or in their mental health. Research from disciplines such as sociology and anthropology uh, and also evolutionary psychology. So we decided to develop a 10-week intervention with the Royal College of Music that was designed for mothers with postnatal depression and their babies to do singing workshops in the local community as a way of building their support networks, their own mental health and giving them tools that they could use with their babies to help them feed and sleep and stop crying. And we ran a three-arm randomised control trial with women going into 10 weeks of usual care on the NHS, 10 weeks of social groups or 10 weeks of social singing groups. And we found the singing group recovered on average a month earlier than either of the other two groups. Than the social group as well? Yes. So what what would the social group have involved? Pretty much identical. It was the same location, the same leader, the same time, but they weren't doing singing. They were doing some kinds of uh, common activities, sort of playing with their babies, crafts-based things, but they weren't doing the singing. And this was really critical because we wanted to know, is it the singing or just the fact that singing is social Mm. that's important? Mm. And could you clarify what exactly your findings were with the, with the singing group? So we ran a whole number of sub-studies to look at why it was that singing led to this faster improvement than the control mm. or the comparison group. Um, and biologically we found that singing led to greater decreases in stress hormones, which we know are a major part of mental health. Um, singing was also linked in with greater mother-infant bonding across the session, and the, the feeling of closeness between mothers and their babies. And that's something that can be disrupted by postnatal depression. We also did um, some qualitative work which identified that the mothers uh, felt they'd actually had more space focusing on them rather than the babies with the singing as well. And also that they had this as this tool that I mentioned earlier, something they could go away and do at home and therefore feel more competent as mothers. So there seemed to be a whole number of different mechanisms by which this was acting. Uh, But it seemed to be a very effective way of supporting women with this condition. Absolutely. And an example of where no one field seems to have the answer of why the mother's mental health has improved. Um, seems like the answers have come from 
sociology, neuroscience, psychology. Exactly, and we published our main RCT paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry, and then we published about half a dozen other papers in um, discipline-specific journals where we looked with these different lenses on trying to understand the problem. So it was a perfect example of this interdisciplinarity in practice. Fantastic. And has this work itself led to any new programmes or...? Yes, the programme has since rolled out um, in some boroughs of South London, so it's now reaching more women, particularly targeting those of low socioeconomic status and ethnic minority backgrounds who are less likely to engage with health services anyway. And we're hoping to be expanding this across 2020 to more areas in London as well. Wow, that's really exciting. So that's uh, on the treatment side of things. What about arts and prevention? This is a very interesting question and one I became fascinated in a couple of years ago because I was aware that most of the research was focusing on this treatment angle, but I was wondering whether engaging in arts in childhood, adolescence, into life, could that be essentially acting as a buffer against your risk of developing other health conditions? So initially I received a welcome fellowship to look at this using cohort studies. And I looked at UCL's cohort studies and actually across five or six cohorts I found there were nearly 400 questions on different types of arts and cultural engagements that have been pretty much ignored up until now. So it was a perfect opportunity to look longitudinally at where the arts engagement is linked in with these different health outs. So what cohort studies was it specifically that you looked at? Things like the English Longitudinal Study of Ageing, UCL's birth cohorts from 1946, 58, 70 and the Millennium. Uh, and Whitehall study and we've also been looking at understanding society and taking part. Okay and with the ELSA data set, the English Longitudinal Study of Ageing for example, would you be able to describe what that means and how is that a sort of longitudinal study? And So this is a study that was developed from the Health Survey for England around the millennium and it, it's run every two years, it tracks a representative sample of adults over the age of 50 in the UK and it looks at thousands of variables, it looks at full psychological profiles, medical conditions, it links to NHS medical records, it goes through lots of their activities, their health behaviours, their social and cultural behaviours, it asks about their education attainment, about health conditions, about their finances, so it gives an incredibly rich picture of their lives. Great, and what were the things that you were able to specifically look at? Well, one of the things we looked at, for example, was where their arts engagement could help to reduce your risk of developing depression in your lifespan. Okay. And we actually found that it does. People who engage more have got a lower risk of developing depression at any point. And what do we mean by arts engagement? So this we were looking specifically at different types of culture, so going to museums, galleries, theatres or concerts, or the cinema as well. So you found that had a protective effect against depression? Well, of course, because it's epidemiology, we can never say effects, but we can say there was a longitudinal protective association. And we looked at a whole number of ways of identifying whether this might be causal. So, for example, uh, we were able to control for lots of things that might confound this, so things like demographics, socioeconomic status, other health or social behaviours that people had or levels of cognitive engagements. We also ran some other analyses where we used a matching approach so we took people who did engage in the arts and we found them essentially a twin who was identical on all their kind of demographic and lifestyle factors but just didn't happen to engage and we found that the same relationship was still there. We also looked at how things changed over time so we looked at people comparing them against themselves and found that if they take up a new arts activity or a new arts hobby as well then they've got a lower risk of then later developing depression. So we've used a whole range of different statistical approaches to really try and understand if this is happening and why it might be. Wow, okay. So j- just a couple things to pick up on there. So in terms of socioeconomic status, for example, mm-hmm. I think there's perhaps a public perspective that arts and cultural engagement is for people of a particular socioeconomic group and mm-hmm. not for others. Um, what have you looked at there to 
to show that that's the case or isn't the case? Or Well, one of the papers we're working on at the moment is using um, Understanding Society cohort, and we've actually been trying to see what is the profile of people who engage. And this has been done a few times, but often in reports rather than done as research, and therefore there have been quite a few methodological problems with it. But we have actually found that, unsurprisingly, there is a social gradient across arts participation. So what do you mean by that? So it means that people who have got lower levels of educational attainment, lower levels of socioeconomic position, they are less likely to be engaging in these activities. And there are a whole number of reasons why this is. Uh, but what's interesting is that actually the studies that we've also done alongside this, we found that those people of lower socioeconomic status can often benefit disproportionately more than the people of higher socioeconomic status from engaging. In wow. other words, uh, that the activities like arts can be even more beneficial for this population. So in other words, the gradient that we see here is important for two reasons. First, we have to separate out if the gradient is causing the associations with health or and, and therefore try and isolate arts from this. And we've done this in a, a range of statistical ways. But the other thing, the reason it's important is because at the moment, given this patterning, it suggests that unequal access to the arts could actually be exacerbating health inequalities and social inequalities. Mm -hmm. So this brings in a whole behavioural question of how can we then ensure that the people who need to benefit most can benefit most. So we're doing lots of related studies using behaviour change theory to try and identify how we can engage those people who currently don't engage. And I suppose it's behavioural change, but we also need structural and, and institutional changes as well. Yes, but I think we're quite fortunate with our arts councils in the UK, and they're, they're very engaged in this topic. They're aware about inequalities in access, they're very keen to address them, and they seem keen to, to work with researchers to do this in a, in a research-driven way. So the, the, the partnerships that we have with these arts councils has been really productive so far. That's great. And another thing that I wanted to pick up on, surely reverse causation is possible, so people who are depressed and have lower levels of mental health are less likely to go to museums and theatres. Mm -hmm. Is that something that could be possible? With Very much, yes. And this is another thing we've been really trying to tease apart here. Uh, there are lots of ways we've done this. Um, with birth cohorts, you're able to track people right from birth. So we've been able to look at things like very early childhood exposure and how that's linked in. Uh, we've also been able to do things like controlling for people's existing mental health problems or mental health state. We've also been able to exclude anybody who's ever had any kind of mental health um, problem recorded in any of these cohorts. Okay. So we know we're working with a sample which has got very good mental health. And we've, also, and we've actually also been able to look at people with mental illness and find that even if they've had it, they actually have a lower risk of getting it again if they're engaging. So that the positive thing is that across all the studies we've run, we're getting the same consistent message on the benefits for prevention. So that hopefully each study cancels out the methodological weaknesses or biases from each previous study. Fantastic. And, and leading on from that, what do you think are some of the key research questions around this work that still need to be addressed? I think we need to understand a lot more about the mechanisms underlying this, in that at the moment, lots of the mechanisms that have been explored have been those where there happens to be a researcher with that particular uh, disciplinary lens who's wanted to look at this topic. Right. But we know there are some big gaps in our understanding of mechanisms, uh, particularly around things like biological mechanisms and epigenetic mechanisms as well. I think we also need to understand a lot more about their behavioural aspects here. We know that some people are benefiting more than others, and we know that some people could engage more if they were engaged in the right way. So it's identifying who those populations are and how we can reach them. But also I think it's about looking at particular mental health conditions for which we don't have adequate solutions at the moment, and trying to see if this is something that the arts or culture or other types of social activities could be helping with. So trying to draw on the energy of our grassroots community sector to develop new interventions where we've got these gaps. 
Absolutely. And, and with regard to the, the mechanisms, what is some of the most exciting research out there at the moment that proposes certain mechanisms for arts engagement and, and mental health and what, what is actually going on there? Well, the mechanisms I personally find most exciting are the biological ones, given my background. So we've done studies looking at things like stress hormones, looking at things like inflammation. One of our recent findings is that people um, who engage more socially in activities, they have lower levels of inflammatory neuroimmune markers, so things like C-reactive protein um, or fibrinogen or white blood cells. Whereas people who are lonely, they actually have um, lower levels of factors that inhibit inflammation. So in other words, we're seeing these different pathways for the objective aspects of how often and what people engage in compared to the more subjective aspects of how they feel that is benefiting them in terms of their emotional response to sure. social activities. And this is quite amazing because some of these markers are markers that lead to disease in later life, potentially lead to cancer or a protective against disease so these are really important markers to, to measure aren't they? Exactly and lots of the mental health studies coming out at the moment are using many of these same markers in relation to other kinds of treatments as well whether they're um, uh, pharmacological treatments or um, psychological therapies as well so it's really promising if we're seeing the same kind of response from these social activities as well. Fantastic so there seems to be this huge increase now in, in evidence around the beneficial effects of, of arts, culture, music and engagement with these things on mental health what policy changes has this increase in evidence led to? We've definitely had much more policy interest in this area over the last few years. The all-party parliamentary group for arts, health and wellbeing was really instrumental in this, in terms of getting a group of MPs together and doing regular events that, were, that was giving them the evidence, and also in producing the fantastic Creative Health Report, which summarised some of the evidence alongside lots of practice. Um, and this has been really helpful for speaking with commissioners and policymakers. More recently, I've been working as a consultant to World Health Organisation who've got very interested in this subject. And we've been writing a whole series of reports, one of which is an evidence synthesis, where we've brought together the evidence from over 3,000 studies on arts and health. So there's a huge literature out there now into a very concise 20,000 word report. Um, and this is being released this November. And we've also been working on things like a Health 2020 report, where this looks at what the key sustainable development goals for health are globally and says, well, how could the arts and cultural sectors help us to achieve these? So I think it's great we've got this very top level support from WHO alongside the national policy engagement from our own government. Absolutely. And are there some ways that this research can be incorporated more into the structure of the NHS as well? Well, we're definitely seeing this with things like social prescribing at the moment, where this is being used as a way of providing additional alternative support for people with things like low-level mental illness, um, as people can then be referred directly through to these community activities from their GP or social worker or other community organisation. So I think it's great that we're seeing this, and I think that things like austerity are actually bizarrely helping this field, because given the lack of NHS resource, finding alternative approaches that draw on resource from other sectors like community sector is being seen at the moment as a good thing. Um, and of course, a key thing is making sure this remains evidence-based and high-quality interventions and very strong evaluations. And I wouldn't say we're there on all of those at the moment, but I think it's, it's good to run with these things when they get political interest and just try and make sure we catch up in providing those other, those other support mechanisms. So final question, if you were health secretary or an even more powerful health czar, what is the single change that you would introduce to improve the mental health and well-being of our population? 
I fear I'm going to be like that person that says if they had one wish, they'd ask for three more wishes. But I think I don't, I don't think we necessarily <laughs> hear about having one particular policy change that's going to solve everything. I mean, if we look at things like the sugar tax, you can have a great policy that actually then gets scrapped because of political whim a, a little bit later. So I would say what we really need to work on is having good communications between health and cultural and community sectors. At the moment, they work very much in separate silos. They don't have overlap on things like budget. So collaboration is extremely difficult. And that's what I think we have to address. If we've got a way of being able to develop and run interventions jointly between Department of Health and Community, Department for Community and Local Government, or DCMS, Department for Culture, Media and Sport, then I think that that's going to be the key thing because that will give us so many opportunities to develop new programmes that would be crossing over between arts, culture and health. Fantastic. So cross-siloing and more interdisciplinary work, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so before we go, where can people find out more about your work and also the March Network? If they want to find out about the March Network, they can go to marchnetwork.org and it's free to sign up. We have excellent newsletters every month and lots of uh, engagement opportunities. And if you look for my name in UCL, then you'll get a nice picture of research papers and activities we've got going on at the moment in my team. Great, and I'll post links to all of those in the show notes and also the studies that we've discussed. Cool, so thank you so much for coming on, Daisy. It's thank been you, a pleasure. Andrew.